Hey guys, welcome to the view from the front. My name is Stan and this is the December 7th edition. Hope everyone's doing great out there. We have a ton of stuff to cover tonight. I'll throw out what those things are just real briefly and then we'll get into the show. Uh, we'll start with some news coming out of the Middle East. U.S. forces were again involved in kind of a larger um, firefight, you might say, involving the Navy and some um, Iranian-backed militias, and it looks like that could start to get a little bit hotter as more and more, I guess, insiders say that the U.S. administration needs to take a stronger hand and quit playing defense there. So we'll get into that a bit. Also, I have some sad news involving some U.S. service members. I'll share that as well. Then we're going to move to Ukraine. I'll do a brief update on the funding bill for Ukraine that includes Israeli aid, aid to Taiwan, and also uh, involves the border to the south. And then we're going to get into the Washington Post had a great article about what it's calling the stalemate, which at this point it pretty much is in Ukraine uh, as far as the Ukrainian counteroffensive. We're going to go into that article a bit. Uh, the headline alone was kind of gives you a good idea of just how good the article was. It was a very long one, but it says uh, Ukraine's or stalemate, Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. And then the subhead was miscalculations, divisions marked the offensive planning by the U.S. and Ukraine. So we'll go into that a bit. And it is a fascinating read that goes all the way back from the planning stages to the timing to where the offensive could have happened, should have happened, etc. Great, great article. Uh, then we'll move into there was a prominent Ukrainian government official's wife who's been poisoned. I'll cover that briefly. And then Ukraine got some good news as far as equipment. There's some uh, new equipment, about 100 units that are going to be coming to Ukraine that are great against drones. I will briefly get into that. They also got some huge news as far as artillery goes. They're going to get 18 new pieces of a very important type of gear. I will get into that. And then finally, Ukraine continues to push across the river in the southern part of what is Russian-occupied Crimea. They're pushing across the river near Kherson. I'll cover that a bit. And then finally, we'll get into China some. Two weeks ago, obviously, the president of China, Xi Jinping, visited the United States to San Francisco, and there were some good some good news that came out of that, besides the fact that they were just talking, period. But one of the things that came out of that is that the two uh, militaries, the United States and China, would begin communicating, which should help reduce some of the potential uh, possibilities for escalation or accidents, etc. There's a bit of an update on that, and it's not as good as one would hope. And then, as always, we'll get into that motivation and wisdom section, which I always put in at the end, because we all need a little bit of that, do we not? Now, if you are new to the show, I'm a prior infantry marine. 
Uh, spent more than 10 years in the news business, and I've also written 12 books, most of them about the military or foreign policy. So you can just call me a wannabe Tom Clancy. <laughs> and so I love research. I love news. I love talking about this stuff every Thursday. Every week I do three things. I cover hotspots happening around the world, and there are several reasons for this. First, Americans are terrible at geography. Secondly, the news media in America is horrendous at covering any kind of foreign policy. And finally, we typically get involved in wars before we know what we're doing or why we're doing it. And as a prior Marine who's dodged a few bullets out there, these things matter to me. Uh, the second broader thing I do with every episode is I attempt to unite our country because a house divided cannot stand. And our wide and often angry division is our greatest threat. So I try my best each show to not put down any American or any Republicans or Democrats and to not name call. I also try to be as calm and optimistic as possible because we all get too much negative news with folks saying the world is ending. And finally, I always share a few words of encouragement at the end because almost everything you have seen or read this week has been negative, And I'm betting you could probably use some positivity and encouragement in your life. So this is what I do every week, and I think these are three things people are really interested in. So if this is your first time joining us, welcome. I think you will really enjoy the show. Just as importantly, I think you probably could use the show in your life. Now, before we get to all of that news that I previewed just a moment ago, there's two things I want to talk about. Now, the first one kind of goes into why I think this show is so important, and this was part of a political podcast I was listening to, had nothing to do with foreign policy, but there were some p political analysts on there talking about the upcoming election in next year, 2024. And one of the folks on that podcast was Rick Wilson, who's a prominent Republican strategist who turned against Trump. And I don't care about any of that part, and I'm not going to talk about any of that part. But what I am going to talk about is he was talking about the short, compressed shelf life of foreign policy news. And this is part of why I care about doing what I do every week and why I'm so passionate about it. And so Rick Wilson, who has you know probably 30 years or more of experience helping with uh, political campaigns, and especially at the federal level or the and even presidential ones, Rick Wilson was saying, and I have forgotten this, but he made a good point, that before the 2022 election last year, if you recall, there was that terrible withdrawal from Afghanistan, and everyone was so mad at President Biden, and some of the, you know, some people were blaming Trump because he had started the withdrawal plan, and then some were blaming Biden, but it was ugly, people unfortunately died and even you know I was angry about every, everyone I knew was angry about it and everyone had different views on it or why but regardless a lot of people said that was one of the you know low points of American foreign policy in recent years and that it would absolutely hurt Biden terribly when the elections happened in 2022 but what happened? In 2022, with this expected red wave, it was not a red wave. Everyone knows that. And Rick Wilson said something interesting. And he said that in some polling afterward, he really dug into that because, you know, there was the 
there was the helicopters trying to get troops out and uh, Iraq or I'm sorry Afghan Afghani civilians and people that we had helped there and the planes leaving and there was all this horrific footage it was literally very similar to when the United States withdrew from Vietnam it looked like you know America looked weak it was not a good sight and so he really wanted to dig into the polling and what he found was is that that precise situation Afghanistan the withdrawal etc was not even statistically measurable isn't that crazy? Like, less than one year after that happened, not even statistically measurable. Americans had already forgotten it. And he was talking about how people don't stay focused, even for more than a few weeks or a few days, on some foreign policy stuff. And we know this is true, not only because of that polling and not only because of what happened in that election, but just think about the war in Afghanistan, period. We're talking 20 years, $2 trillion. Most Americans completely forgot about the war, and so... American veterans, many of them doing three tours, four tours, five tours, they bear the absolute brunt and the sacrifice of fighting over there and serving, trying to create this country in one of the world's poorest, you know, least literate places in the world. And most Americans didn't care. And people are more worried about what new series is on Netflix or the latest song or pop artist or who knows what. But you guys know. People have a short attention span, and it's just heartbreaking to me that we are that way in America because there is a very small load, a very small percentage of people who serve our country and who carry a very heavy load. And so I wanted to share that because that's one of the reasons I do this show is that it's just, it's it's almost heartbreaking to me how just little attention we pay to it, how we you know, Afghanistan's a good example how we, a lot of times, mission creep. You know, we go over there to go after uh, Osama bin Laden. And it goes from, let's get the, you know, Al-Qaeda and remove the Taliban and get Osama bin Laden to, oh, we're going to create a democracy. And we just kind of creeped into that mission from special forces and some small, you know, some airborne units, some rangers, some marines trying to chase out the Taliban and go after Osama bin Laden to let's send a lot more troops and we're going to stabilize the country. We're going to build this government. And the next thing you know, we've got a 20 year mission where we're literally trying to really aim high and it was ambitious and you can make an optimistic argument for it but the reality is is there was no big conversation in America about that mission creep and should we try to create a democracy in one of the most illiterate poorest countries in the world because it was it was it was you know a very challenging task and that's putting the absolute best spin on it so that's one of the reasons that I really get into trying to do this, because there's just not good foreign policy news out there, and we know that the American media is terrible at it. Anytime anything happens, they just immediately like put up the flashing graphics and, will America go to war, or what will the casualties be, or how will this affect you, and what prices are in our economy, and you can't, you can't cover foreign policy that way. That's not what we need as a country. So that was the first thing I wanted to share before we get in deeper into the news. And then the second thing... This will probably be the last week that I mention it. But don't forget, if you're looking for a good book or gift idea, I think my books would make a great gift for you or your family or someone you know. I run through them every week, or at least I have the past few weeks. But there's a Marine Sniper series. Starts with the first book is Sold Out. It's the name of it because the guy obviously gets sold out. 
That's a five book series. Or we've got plenty of mysteries slash police procedurals. There's one about a prior Marine Force recon guy who gets out, becomes a detective. Lots of action. It's called Takedown. It's got book two. Got one about a private investigator who's an Army Ranger. It's called Hell in the Mountains. These are great books. And then I've got plenty of books about just war literature. One involves Afghanistan. It's called Heal 406. Involves a couple of Marines who break or defy orders and do that to rescue some people. And then there's a World War II one. It really gets into the grit about what it's like to be a soldier and what those emotions are like. It's called Soldier On. Looks like the reflection's a little rough on that. All of those can be found on Amazon. You can just look up my name and make sure you include the R, Stan R. Mitchell. Great gift ideas. Great way to support a vet and support the show. Okay, so we're going to begin the show with some terrible, tragic news. Uh, unfortunately, since the last episode, there was a cr- an Osprey or an aircraft that crashed. And it initially began as a search and rescue situation, but unfortunately has turned into a recovery um, situation, and the families have been notified, unfortunately. All members involved in that passed. And so I wanted to... There's just something that, to me anyway, this is obviously the worst kind of news for any anyone who's served in the military or has family in the military, because I'm not sure why, but it's almost like training deaths or... In some ways, they're almost worse than those that occur in war. But I think most civilians just have no idea how dangerous it is to train and how to keep the tip of the spear sharp. You have to do night operations. You have to do things that really push the limits of the safety parameters. And I know just speaking for myself as someone who served in the Marine Corps Infantry, you know, we went into a dangerous situation for a couple of days, dodged some bullets, did, did the most dangerous thing you can, and we didn't lose anyone but two years later, that was in 1997. In 1999, we lost one of the guys in my company as a part of a training mission. We were crossing a dangerous creek, almost like a flooded small river, uh, very very hazardous conditions and what was basically a monsoon. And unfortunately, a service member drowned. So it's the training the training losses are just brutal. I know it's a loss is a loss, but there's just something that makes it worse. So if you will bear with me, I would like to read the names of these eight service members who passed. They were all in the Air Force, um, just moving through them quickly. First one was uh, Major Jeffrey T. Honerman of Andover, Minnesota. Major Eric Spinlove of St. George, Utah. Major Luke Unrath of Riverside, California. We've got uh, Air Force Captain Terrell Brayman of Pittsford, New York. Sergeant Zachary, Tech Sergeant Zachary Lavoie of Ovido, Florida. Staff Sergeant Jake Turnage of Kennesaw. Staff Sergeant Jacob Gallagher of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And then we've got uh, Airman Brian Johnson the, uh, of Reynoldsburg, Ohio. And I believe on the uh, on 
uh, Staff Sergeant Jake Turnage. I apologize. I meant to say where he was from. He's from Kennesaw, Georgia. Or maybe I said that and I, I blanked out. But again, this is a horrible, horrific, the, just the worst thing. So, you know, I hope that these service members rest in peace and their families are comforted during this horrific event. And if you're the praying God, a few prayers in that family's direction would probably be appreciated. Okay, so the other U.S. military story that I wanted to make sure I covered in this week's episode involves, again, kind of an outgrowth of the Israel-Hamas war. There was a U.S. Navy ship that was attacked in the Red Sea by Houthi militants. Now, if you aren't familiar with who the uh, Houthi militants are, although they're increasingly moving toward being labeled a terrorist organization, they are an Iranian-backed group that has been fighting in a war in Yemen that started as a civil war, and then Saudi Arabia got involved, and so it's been going on for years. It's mostly stabilized, kind of slowed down, but once the Israel-Hamas activities began, or war, um, obviously it was a horrific attack by Hamas on October 7th that launched the entire thing, but once all of that began, the Houthi militants have been some of the most outspoken I guess, pro-Iranian groups that have kind of been pro-Palestine and have threatened Israel and the West. And so there's been a number of small incidents already, but this one that happened since the last episode is by far the largest to date. So uh, just a quick summary of what happened is that there were four different attacks against three different commercial vessels that were operating in international waters in the southern Red Sea. And so the three vessels were connected to 14 separate nations. And so the um, USS Kearney, which is a Arleigh Burke destroyer class, it responded to distress calls. So these Houthi militants are launching missiles at commercial vessels that are just simply transiting international waters. Obviously, there were no other forces that could respond, and so one of the things that the U.S. does to help stabilize the world economy and to keep international trade going is we help keep sea routes open. And so the USS Kearney responded to help out these commercial vessels, and in fact, one of them was uh, uh, is flagged out of the Bahamas, so this is like very close to almost being like a U.S. ship, but because again, it's a commercial ship. As the war as the USS Kearney gets there, it basically takes part over a five-hour period. Um, multiple drone attacks, multiple missiles, uh, no injuries. Apparently, it's still some, still some of that stuff. There was some damage to some of these ships, but what is increasingly happening is that this is the. Let me study my notes here for just one second. It's the uh, the it's it's happened multiple times, and I apologize that I don't see that in my notes. But more and more officials in the U.S. are saying that the U.S. needs to take off the kid gloves, is how I saw one one individual, prominent individual, describe it, and begin not only defending themselves more aggressively, but also if they see these Houthi groups beginning to set up some of these ballistic missile shots or other aggressive activity, 
more and more folks are saying the U.S. should do something and strike first. So I did want to share that. I have said for the past few weeks that I did not believe it was in Iran's interest to expand the war, and I've detailed in previous episodes how Iran has continually pulled back a bit since the attack on October 7th in Hamas. I have talked about that I do not think Iran wants any kind of confrontation with Israel or the U.S. because Iran knows we would probably destroy the progress they have made toward nuclear production, maybe a nuclear weapon, and that could very quickly be turned against them. Obviously, any kind of escalation would be ugly for us as well and pretty widespread, but Iran has a lot to lose, and they have in numerous behind-the-scenes maneuvers pulled back from the brink, even though some of their public statements to keep their people happy have been fairly strong. I could cite probably three to five things they've done, steps they've taken to pull back, because they know that Israel is still livid about these attacks that happened on them, and the U.S., as as I have detailed, moved two carrier groups into the area. We've moved a lot of firepower And so this is just kind of one of those deals where just like the schoolyard bully will often talk a lot of talk or instigate, instigate, instigate. But once you finally get up to confront them or get to the point where you're going to do something, they usually back off. And that's what Iran has basically done in the past six weeks or so. Having said that, and this is one of the dangers that I mentioned probably four or five weeks ago, a lot of these groups that Iran trains, supports, and funds they it's kind of a dual-edged sword they have very little control of. Now, a lot of times they don't want to claim to have control so that they have plausible deniability when these groups operate or act. Iran can say it wasn't us. But at the same time, a lot of these groups are more aggressive than Iran is, at least in this instance. And so Iran doesn't have a lot of control. And so some groups are being more aggressive than others. So I would say that pressure has been building and that in the coming weeks, we could see a much stronger response from the U.S. So we'll keep an eye on that, especially as we go toward Christmas and we have elections next year. And I don't think the Biden administration wants to be seen as too weak. And so we will keep our eyes open on on if this leads to some kind of much larger response, maybe some type of target package. I am sure that behind the scenes, administration officials, probably people from the State Department have probably, you know, done the whole proverbial slide a folder across, you know, a table and said, if you do this again, here's the possibility of really bad things that are going to happen to you. But we will see. But we're definitely going to keep an eye on it because As I've said, for six weeks or so, I've been very skeptical that the war would widen. Our media blew it all out of proportion like they always do, and everyone's been talking about that we would get involved. And I've consistently been saying I did not think we would. I did not think Iran would expand this. I'm now pulling back just a tad because the number of attacks that have happened against commercial vessels and U.S. vessels have kind of ramped up the pressure, so... I'm kind of changing my call just a tad and saying that I think the chance of some type of further response has risen a bit and and could already be in the planning stages. 
I'm sure it's probably already in the planning stages. It's just a matter of if the um, Biden administration will, I guess, pull the trigger or give the go-ahead. So we'll keep an eye on that. All right, so let's get to Ukraine. There's a lot of great news there that I want to talk about, although I guess not all of it's great news, but there's a lot of news that I definitely want to get into. I want to start with just an update on the funding situation. As you probably have heard a little bit in the news, the Senate is wrangling back and forth um, about passing a bill from President Biden. The Republicans are obviously wanting to make sure it includes border security. The Democrats are more focused on, let's make sure we just get this money to Ukraine before it runs out. So the military did announce that they're down to, the Pentagon says they have less than $1.1 billion in existing resources to backfill U.S. military stockpiles and that it's fast running out. So the Biden administration has really been trying to make sure something happens before the Christmas break. So I know that seems like, you know, today, if you're watching this, is December 7th and you're like, yeah, there's a couple of weeks away. But with congressional timelines and how much time those guys spend off and how little they honestly do, it's it's going fast. As far as the clock is spinning fast, the time is counting down very quickly. And so we're really up against the clock as far as getting that passed. So I'll share more as I know more, but that's where we are right now. Now, what I really want to get into, we've obviously spent the entire spring, summer, and fall, and now we've gotten into winter talking about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. In the end, I don't think anyone was super happy with the results. Even President Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said he was disappointed. They didn't get the kind of push that they had wanted. So what happened? Well, the news is starting to come out about what might have actually happened, and The Washington Post had just a brilliant, very in-depth article about some of the friction between the U.S. planners and Ukraine, what was actually achieved on the ground. And so I wanted to cover that just for a little bit. Now, I will say, in the Substack notes, I have a gift link. I highly recommend you go read this article. Really good. When you have a few minutes... Get a cup of coffee, read it. It's got maps, illustrations. It's going to go way more in depth than what I'm sharing. And as someone who's been subscribed to the Washington Post for quite a while, I kind of recommend you subscribe. You can do that for about five to seven bucks a month, depending on what deal they have going on for their digital edition, which is all you need anyway. So let's get into this article. Again, there's so much in it. Make sure you check out the gift link. I think you will appreciate it. But again, the headline, as I mentioned in the intro, was stalemate. Ukraine's failed counteroffensive miscalculations and divisions marked the offensive planning by U.S. and Ukraine. So I'm just going to hit the high points. First of all, going all the way back into the spring, the article discusses how and lays out and even describes the meetings and who were there U.S. officials were meeting with Ukrainian officials as well as NATO officials 
as they did tabletop exercises as they planned for this upcoming spring offensive. Now, what's really important to get your arms around is that the United States, as well as the West slash NATO, all believed that Ukraine should pick one place and put all of its forces there. A massive thrust, a main thrust, all-out effort, go through one place with what was nine brigades that are mechanized with U.S. and NATO Western European equipment. So that's what the U.S. wanted. And they did all of these war games or tabletop exercises. And the optimistic scenario, I'm going to hit a couple of figures there, was that the they, if Ukraine went all in toward the south, toward uh, Melitopol, that according to all of these exercises, and some of these are super advanced and use computers, and some of them are kind of old-fashioned, and you basically have generals on one side who make moves, and then they have other generals who are playing the Russian op for or opposing forces who say, okay, if you did that, I'm going to try to do this. And they use, you know, realistic units. What is in the area? What could you do? So they went through these all these different um, scenarios. And so the most optimistic one was that Ukrainian forces, if they had followed this plan, could cut the land bridge, which we have talked about so much this year, cut the land bridge in about 60 to 90 days. It would be a bloody fight, and there'd be about 30 to 40% casualties. Now, the American officials acknowledged that that high of casualties was sobering, and they laid out to the Ukrainian military officials numerous times during Desert Shield, Desert Storm back in the 90s when the U.S. fought Iraq, the second Iraq war, Afghanistan, other examples of where you begin the strategy and the planning and you think, oh man, casualties are going to be this high. Often they are not, but you go into it trying to find ways to limit them. So the U.S. officials say, hey, worst case, this is what it could be, but, and they really stress to Ukraine this point, that even if they were 30 to 40 percent that if Ukraine did not do the single thrust, that ultimately the war would be drawn out. More Ukrainian troops would be killed or wounded if they failed in this counteroffensive. So basically the U.S. is saying if you don't do this and it fails, there will be attrition warfare. It will last for months and months and months into years. And way more people are going to die than if you throw a hard punch with everything you've got and just hit one spot. That was the plan. Let's talk about the Ukrainian side of this, according to this Washington Post article, which is deeply sourced. The Ukrainians say, hey, this wargaming doesn't work. The modern battlefield is way different. There, there, there are these drones we don't have air power, all this stuff that you're saying, this combined arms offensive that you're planning, that isn't going to work in Ukraine. So they were very skeptical. Very, um, they weren't really buying in. So that was part one. Part two was they also 
did not want to hit in just one area. They wanted to do three thrusts instead of one. So we wanted one hard thrust. They wanted three. They wanted one in the area that the U.S. recommended, which was Melitopol. They wanted one that was more toward the middle of the south in the Zaporizhia area. And then they wanted one that was a bit more in the area of Bakhmut. So Ukraine, instead of doing one hard thrust, wanted three. So that's the disagreement on the tactics to begin with. So that's just the start of the issue. Now, moving along, part of what the Ukrainians were saying was that if you recall, for months and months, the fighting around Bakhmut had become shorthand for their pride of their troops' fierce resistance and that it really affected Ukrainian morale that they had held Bakhmut for so long, and then when they finally pulled back, Ukraine saw it, and especially President Zelensky, according to this article, that they could not take troops from Bakhmut because Russia had massed a lot of forces there. And so Ukraine worried that if they moved troops toward the south for this big push that the United States planners wanted, Ukraine was concerned that there was almost no way that Russia wouldn't continue its advance and take back much of the area in the northeast of uh, Ukraine and take back parts of Kharkiv, where Ukraine had literally sprinted late last year and take take had you know retaken like 1,600 miles, a lot or 1,600 kilometers. It was a ton of territory over a very short span. So Ukraine was afraid to move troops and mass them in the south. That's the first thing. And then, of course, also they wanted to retake Bakhmut for pride reasons and to make Russia realize that its move to take Bakhmut had been a huge strategic mistake. The other thing is they really did, they're the general of the Ukrainian army, Zaluzny. He wanted to stretch out and starve and weaken this entire 600 mile front and wanted to basically make it such a so much pressure across such a wide front that the Russians would not know how to react. He was afraid that if they did a single thrust, the Russians would shift forces and could deal with that. The Americans obviously disagreed with this plan, but in the end, the Americans said, hey, they know the terrain, the Ukrainians know the Russians, it's not our war, we'll just sit, we just have to let them decide. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more just like I said, this article's a great read. You really have to read it. The Americans wanted the attack to happen in April, early spring. Unfortunately, the time period just keeps stretching out from April into May and into June before this thing is launched. And the entire time that this is happening, the Russians, who their morale is low, they have very few tanks, limited a, a lot of stuff. But there's one thing they weren't limited on, and that was mines. And so the whole time, the Russians are digging like crazy. And according to this article, the Russians are putting in troops and obviously very sophisticated defensive positions in trenches. But they even have blocking forces that if any Russians were to retreat, these Russian troops knew they would be literally slaughtered by Russian troops. They would be shot for retreating. And so they almost worked like very motivated servants, just absolutely scared out of their mind. The article, in fact, I believe the word we used was almost like slave labor. These guys knew, these Russian troops knew, 
we got to dig like crazy. We got to put a ton of mines. And Russia apparently had almost an unlimited amount of mines. We got to put so many mines in front of us, anti-tank, anti-personnel, that that that's our only way we're going to live is if we dig and if we place mines. So this whole time, Russia is making their lines stronger, strengthening everything. This is going from April into May into June. And the whole time... United States is saying, go, go, go. You got to go. Why are you guys waiting? Why are you guys waiting? Well, the Ukrainians said that a lot of their equipment was not arriving in time. The tanks, the Bradleys, that there were delays. And so they also were trying to train up these units, most of whom had very limited amount of combat veterans. Most of them had 70% raw recruits, people who had very little training. So this wasn't like some crack force these were newly trained troops with new equipment they didn't know that well. And so they were trying to expand the amount of time they had to train. Unfortunately, Russia that whole time was digging in. Now, Ukraine also says that they only received like 15% of the items that they needed, like the uh, mine clearing line charges, which are those, you know, a tank pulls a trailer, it launches a, uh, a short rocket with a a line of charges behind it, you blow it up and it provides a line of basically a small trail that tanks can go through. Any t any anti-tank mines on that small trail would be blown up or blown up. So the U.S. and NATO had sent quite a few of those, but Ukraine said they only had 15% of what they needed. On the flip side, U.S. officials, because now they're kind of arguing the U.S. and Ukraine, both sides are trying to blame the other. U.S. Dis the U.S. people, officials speaking off the record, disagree. They claim that that more than two dozen of those line charges, um, trailers and tanks were sent, that more than 40 mine rollers were sent, ex excavators, Bangladore um, torpedoes, 80,000 smoke grenades, that the general of Ukraine had requested 1,000 armored vehicles, the Pentagon ultimately delivered 1,500, and so U.S. is saying, no, 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 we gave them everything they wanted. And they even say, we gave it to them on time. Okay, so you got two different disagreements there. Complicating things is that the, US, the Ukrainians say some of their equipment didn't work, which of course happens when you move equipment. They also say some of them didn't have radios, so they get all these, un all these uh, vehicles but they don't have a way for all the vehicles to communicate. And as someone that knows a little bit about the military, I can tell you, like, if, if you can't communicate between vehicles, that kind of is an issue. So I, I see the Ukrainian point on that. Now, on top of all of that, bad weather arrives. Aprilish, there was melting snow, heavy rains, way worse than normal. So there was much heavier mud in the spring, and it came late, and it lasted longer than usual. So by... The Mayish, Junish time, people were really worried about the weather, when they could actually do this attack, and in the part where they wanted to do part of the attack. Obviously, Ukraine's been called the breadbasket of the world, but the mud, it's very rich black soil, and it can be almost like glue, and it's, it sticks to your boots, it sticks to tracks. It's very hard to maneuver there, so the weather was horrible. It's all of that. It's kind of the background. Well, finally, after much urging by the U.S., the Ukrainians finally start launching their attacks in June, and it ends up being horrific. 
Uh, one part of the article I wanted to mention was they get into the details about the 37th Reconnaissance Brigade. This unit attempts to advance, and immediately they 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 absolutely start coming under heavy fire, mortar fire, artillery, anti-tank uh, missiles. Their own artillery didn't start on time as expected. And so in one unit, 30 of 50 soldiers were captured. Um, the Ukrainians lost 20 Bradley fighting vehicles in these first attacks and six German-made Leopard tanks. So it's so bloody that the head of Ukraine's army, Zaluzny, tells them to pause their assaults because he doesn't want to lose all this Western armor. The article goes into that in some of these minefields, that instead of just like you would have a, uh, you know, anti-tank mine here, one kind of in the middle, one behind it, that in some places the mines were almost stacked on top of each other. They were laid so thick, way worse than what Ukraine or the United States had expected. And so Zaluzny tells the Ukrainian army to pause their assaults, doesn't want to lose any more of these NATO weapons. At that time, and I covered this heavily, Ukrainian, I'm sorry, Russian Attack helicopters were just absolutely raining terror on the Ukrainians, firing anti-tank missiles from outside of the, basically the Ukrainians had no weapon system that could fire back at them. And so these helicopters were really doing a number. Russia had moved almost a hundred of them down to the south. And so it was very bad for Ukraine according to this article, and this article basically reinforces what you will read anywhere else. So they hold all that up, and as you know, since then, the Ukrainians begin doing these small foot assaults of about 4 to 10 troops at a time, sometimes maybe a platoon of 20 to 30, and they very slowly do these small-scale assaults, and they advance by 200 meters some days, 500 meters the next, it's very slow, but again, it's almost, as the U.S. would say, attrition warfare, but it has been a grinding fight, and that has led to a kind of lower morale among Western backers. So again, it's a great article, and I just barely hit the high points, but the gift link is in the Substack notes. Go read the whole thing. I think it will just blow you away that just how good it is. And it's one of those, you read those articles, and it's very, very balanced, at least in my opinion. And you can see both sides completely. I understand the Ukrainian side of it. I understand the Russian side, or I'm sorry, the American side. It's just, all of it is tragic. It's horrible that Russia invaded Ukraine, and that all of this is happening in the first place. But just reading this almost real-life narrative of what's happening with so much in the air, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's heart-tearing to even just read it. But again, go take a look yourself. Let me know if I missed anything you think I should have added. But it's a good article, so i got to give a hat tip to the Washington Post for doing such a good job on that. And some analysts are saying that America's in this, like, push-all-the-blame-on-Ukraine phase right now. I hope that's not the case, but, you know, it is what it is. And it's kind of like uh, the analogy that I would uses. It's just like a, a college football team or an NFL football team. When you're winning, everything's great. When you're losing or when it's a stalemate, that's when 
the stories start popping up about friction between players, about disagreements between the team and the coach on what plays are being called. All kinds of stuff starts to come out, and that's what's happening right now. So not the best article necessarily to want to talk about if you're someone who wants to support Ukraine, but I think it's an important article. I hope Ukraine learns from it. I hope the U.S. learns from it, and um, I hope Ukraine continues to get better funded and, and, and better prepared for what's going to be a tough winter and the spring and, and summer that's coming up. So I think I've covered that well enough. Let's move to the next the next thing I want to cover in regards to Ukraine is kind of a surprising article. I'm not going to spend too long on it, but this past week it came out that Russia had poisoned the wife of Ukraine's military intelligence chief. Now, she was poisoned with heavy metals. Clearly, in the past, what, 10, 15 years, Russia has a long history of poisoning various people, people who've spoken out against Russia. It's just one of the things they seem to do a lot of. Uh, the lady's name is uh, Mariana Budanova. Now, apparently, they have treated her, and she's going to survive. If you remember, there's been some Russian... Uh, anti-Putin, outspoken folks who've been poisoned and sometimes their face will turn gray or black or, I mean, they, they literally get poisoned and if they're lucky enough to live, the effects are not, are not pretty to say the least. Not to mention the horrible health effects that, of what it does to your body because obviously they're poisoned with what is hoped to be enough to be fatal if you're Russia and if someone survives that, it really shortens your lifespan and even the quality of your life. But at least for the moment, she's alive. She's expected to live. Now, the interesting thing about this is that a lot of people on social media who follow Ukraine and have been covering this war in detail have been just flabbergasted at the stupidity of this move by probably Vladimir Putin in that these analysts say, you know, they with with Putin taking the gloves off and going after a family member, not not the intelligence chief himself, going after the wife. He has absolutely set up a lot of Russian families of intelligence folks, of military generals' wives, you know, some of the oligarchs in Russia, some of the Russian businessmen and families that support Putin who are outside of Russia, a lot of the analysts were saying this is madness because there are a lot of unprotected or barely protected oligarch wives, you know, high-ranking military general family members who Ukraine might go after. Now, Ukraine's military intelligence apparatus or they're very good, and they're very widespread. There's even been some articles that talked about some of the things Ukraine has done inside Africa. Ukraine has operated, obviously, I, I there are some gray areas as to whether Ukraine did it, but they've definitely done things inside Moscow. They've, they've done drone attacks. There have been some car bombs. They have very easily penetrated Russia already, and so... A lot of analysts are just saying this is just crazy that Russia would do this because they have potentially opened up a black box that is not going to be pretty if 
if Ukraine were to respond in any kind of near similar type response as expected. So we'll see. But I did want to note that because it is big news that Russia would... I mean, I, I have throughout covering this for the past almost year plus since almost two years now since Russia invaded this most recent time. Of course, they originally invaded in 2014, but Russia has had the gloves off the entire time. They've bombed cities. They have raped women. They have murdered civilians. They have abducted kids and taken them back to Russia. Russia has been fighting horrifically from the beginning. They've obviously attacked Ukrainian electrical substations to try to freeze out the Ukrainians. They've blown up dams. They've flooded areas. They have done everything already. So maybe they just figured they had nothing to lose. Maybe it was desperation. I'm not sure, but it's probably it's probably the start of something that's going to get a lot uglier and involve people outside circles that normally might not be involved in the targeting of in a normal military operation. But I did want to share that because I do think this could be the start of something. Okay, so let's cover some good news. We've covered plenty of bad news, and it's almost, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time with the funding being up in the air, with the fact that it has mostly been a stalemate, the fact that Russia continues to do a counteroffensive of its own in the Abdivka area. So let's cover some good news to try to balance some of that out. As I've said before, I will always shoot everything straight with you guys, but a little good news, if you will. First of all, Ukraine is getting from Australia a great, great weapon system. They're called a Slinger Anti-Drone Weapon System. So this weapon system can be installed on top of various types of armored vehicles like the M113 uh, it's a it's like an infantry fighting vehicle, just basically a, a infantry carrier system. It can be put on Bush uh, Bushmaster armored personnel carriers. It can be installed on a lot of things. But what's cool about this, and I've got an image of it in the Substack notes if you want to look at it, is it's got a 30 millimeter cannon on it, and it's also got a 7.62 millimeter machine gun. Both of them are very. Uh, accurate. They use thermal imaging and night vision for day-night operation. They have a guidance system, so it's not some human aiming it. It's all computerized. They can be rapidly reloaded. Obviously, these drone attacks can sometimes come with multiple drones, and they're sending 110 of these to Ukraine. So in a war that's increasingly dominated by drone attacks from both sides, that's a big deal. So 110 of these units they, as I said, they're automated. They aim themselves. You can move them around because you'll put them on top of vehicles so there's no static defense. You can move them around as Russia moves their drone swarms. They don't really quite get to the point of drone swarms, but these things can be pretty pretty effective, I think. So I thought that was pretty big news. I did want to share that. That's the first piece. Now, the second piece is just as big a deal. Like when I was working on this article, I thought, or this episode, I'm like, I don't know what's better, the anti-drone things or what I'm going to say now, which is Poland is sending 18 self-propelled 155 millimeter artillery systems. So these are like, they look like tanks basically, but they fire and move quickly. It's not like you have to tow an artillery piece behind a truck 
spin it around, extend out its legs, load it, fire, and then try to, you know, maybe you fire one or two rounds or three, and then you got to quickly get the legs back in, hook it to a truck and go in case the Russians fire back artillery. The entire war self-propelled artillery, which is, again, it's almost like a tank. It's got a tank frame. They can fire, and because there's no troops outside of it, there's no legs, nothing to unhook, they just immediately move. These things have increasingly been more and more valuable and more and more destructive against the enemy. That's the background. Well, Poland is sending 18 more of these to Ukraine. Now, I should note... If you're a long-time listener, you know this. Russia began the war with a massive artillery advantage. Ukraine has increasingly, because of really effective counter-battery radar sent from the West and increasing amounts of artillery and those uh, multiple-launch rocket systems, those HIMARS rockets that we've sent, Ukraine has been chipping away at this artillery advantage that Russia used to hold to the point where there's parity in many places. And in some places, Ukraine has actually got the slot edge. So having 18 of these new ones sent is a huge deal for Ukraine as it moves forward. So I wanted to mention that as well. This is an advanced weapon system with a very long range. It's the same type of ammunition that they have on all the other 155 millimeters. So... It's easily to supply. It doesn't add to the logistical nightmare that you know Ukraine has to deal with because they have so many different weapon systems, both former Russia slash communist bloc we- weapon systems that they began the war with, and increasingly NATO weapon systems, all use different types of ammo. It's it's a logistical nightmare, but this would be something that doesn't add to that logistical nightmare, and that will definitely have an effect in the coming months and and year or two. One final piece of news regarding Ukraine that I wanted to share that is just great news for Ukraine. We've talked in previous episodes that in the southern part of Ukraine, of of Russian-occupied Ukraine, across the Dnipro River, that, uh, I almost said U.S., but that Ukrainian Marines have crossed that Dnipro River And they've been increasingly expanding their foothold multiple kilometers deep. Four kilometers, depending on which source you believe. Obviously, they're trying to keep much of this secret. But since last week, there have been some additional engagements. And even though long long term, a lot of people are skeptical about what Ukraine can do there. It's marshy ground. There aren't a lot of roads. Well, in the past week... There have been an, an additional advance further into Russian-occupied territory by the Ukrainian Marines. And I'm, I've got a link to an article in the source notes if you want to go read it. But not only have the Ukrainian Marines pushed further, but the air defenses are getting better in that area. And they have uh, the Russians have been forced, they're using these glide bombs, which are launching from way back to keep from getting shot down. Well, they're having to move even further back. So the accuracy of these missiles is is becoming is is diminishing. And also the artillery fire that has been pretty heavy on these Ukrainian Marines has been ugly fighting there is increasingly Russia's running out of observers and their drones. Uh, there's if you read the article in the link, uh, 
Ukraine managed to take out a drone team, one of the kind of almost command element drone teams for Russia. And so they're increasingly uh, unable to use drones against Ukrainians because the Ukrainians are just getting their foothold better and better established and better defended. They've also gotten more small boats sent. Now, if you look on social media, I did see, and I couldn't find an article to verify this, so I'm putting this in the... I think it. they had it, but at one point, Ukraine apparently had a pontoon bridge up so that they could move supplies and vehicles across faster. It looks like Russia hit that and blew it up. Now, some people, you know, like I, I couldn't totally verify it. Didn't see it in a lot of places. So there have been pontoon bridges in the past. This might have been one that Russia had that got blown up. But again, it's kind of skeptical. I know that I would think anyway that Ukraine would want to set up a pontoon bridge. They have the equipment to do it. So if they haven't done it or if it was done and it was bombed, I think they will do it again or they will do it soon for the first time if they haven't already. And so that bridgehead hopefully will expand. I think Russia has to start taking it more and more serious, but I'm not sure how many forces they have down there to cope with this threat from Ukraine. So that's great news for if you're on the side of Ukraine for sure. Okay, so we have two sections left. We're going to cover a short bit about China, and then we'll get into the best part of the show, the motivation and wisdom, before we sign off. I did want to remind you, if you want to support the show, you can support the show through either Substack or Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support it for $5 per month. It's a great way to help get the show a little better reach and justify some of the time I'm putting into it. You can come and go as you please. No pressure to do so. All the details to subscribe can be found in the Substack notes. So thanks for considering that. And like I said, you can come and go as you please. Now, to the China news. So we talked about, let me get to my notes here. We talked about a couple weeks ago that Xi Jinping came to America, visited San Francisco. We laid out the red carpet. We treated him well. We had business executives meet with him. And it was maybe a little bit of a thawing of relations between China and the United States. One of the things talked about from that meeting was that China and the United States would begin to have military-to-military -military communication, which would help reduce any chances of kind of an escalation or some of the dangerous situations where planes and jets are flying near each other, where ships are going too close to each other. It was a way that perhaps some of that stuff could be, we could dial it down. Unfortunately, since then, as of December 2nd, which is about five days ago, when you're watching this anyway. I'm recording this Wednesday night, so I had to do the math in my head. But the United States top general did say when asked in an interview that the U.S. is still waiting to hear back from China about resuming military-to-military -military ties as the two countries seek to, and I quote, stabilize their fraught relationship. So uh, General Charles Q. Brown Jr. said, I'm quote, standing by, waiting to hear back. So this might be one of those things where the president of China says one thing and maybe it's for show. Maybe it was nothing. 
you know, they always say judge someone by their actions, not by their words. So we'll see. But I did want to share that because I had shared that the meeting had gone well and that it was kind of a good news, big deal that they were going to resume military to military communication. So it's a little disappointing that that hasn't happened yet. All right, so we will now get to the best part of the show, the motivation and wisdom section. And, you know, I got a little bit of a smile on my face because about 30 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, a mailman pulls up outside. I guess they're called postal carriers now, whatever the right term is, postal workers. So a postal worker pulls up out front to deliver a package. So it's 10.30 at night when I was recording this. Of course, my dog starts barking. My wife is in the bed, so I have to stop recording, go downstairs. And I'm like, oh, it's a mailman or postal carrier. He or she will carry the box up. Well, they carry boxes to my neighbor's house. Then they carry more. Then they carry more. By this point, and they were having to search for the boxes in between each trip. In each trip, it's like two or three boxes. Which, no big deal. But I'm like, oh, come on. I just want to record this last section, get everything wrapped up. I'm running late already. Then, another mail truck pulls up behind the first. And I guess one of them's ending their route or whatever. And, of course, you know, anyone delivering the mail in this season is amazing. I'm not putting any of them down. I'm not complaining, not anything. But they start switching to the truck. So they're switching all these boxes. I guess the one's ending the shift and the other one's taking some of their boxes. And then the one box, the one truck pulls off. And then the guy in the first truck, I guess, has to call his boss. So he's on the phone. Anyway, 30 minutes pass. <laughs> and the whole time, like I had been planning this section for the end, the motivation and wisdom, and I was going to do a good one. And I was going to do a, a good little thing on PTSD which is something I'm really passionate about. And I'm like, you know what? It's almost like the devil is conspiring to keep me from putting that good section in. And he's not going to win. So I'm going to do the full section. I don't care unless the computer goes out or a meteor hits me. We're doing the full section. So 30 minutes later, it's now like 11.05 or something, we're going to do the motivation and wisdom section. And I'm, I'm doing the whole thing. I don't even care. Nothing, nothing's stopping it today. So this is the motivation and wisdom section. I share them every week because I think all of us, and certainly me, could use a few words of encouragement. And so I always like to say that if we're honest, we all matter. And so we're influencing people around us. All of those people around us could benefit from us being a little more motivated, a little more awesome. Your kids, your spouse, your friends, your co-workers. So I want all of us to try to work harder in the coming week to infect them with more energy, more life, more light, more love. You can do this. I can do this. So let's share some motivation. To help you do that. Here's the first one. Nobody cares about your story until you win. So win. That's a good one, isn't it? Next one. Can we choose our emotions? No. Can we choose our reactions? Yes. 
Next one. Breathe. Let go. And remind yourself that this very moment is the only one you know you have for sure. Next one. Stay patient. The best things happen unexpectedly. Alright, next one. This is a life hack. At any given moment, you have the power to say, this is not how my story is going to end. That's a good one, isn't it? Alright, here's the next one. This is kind of one about gratitude. I won't even name the person because I can't possibly pronounce it, but the person says, What a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. Don't be that person. Don't wait until it's too late to realize what you got. Next one. Always remember that no matter how useless you feel, you're someone's reason to smile. Then I wanted to share one from... um, kind of someone I've known through social media for a few years. His name is Todd Anderson. And he shared something. Uh, He lost his father to suicide 22 years ago. And he had shared a tweet and said, If you are struggling with anything in your life, do not hesitate to reach out for help. The people in your life would much rather have you around than have to carry the pain of your absence For the rest of their lives. And as I said, Todd gave me permission to share this. And he added, when I requested his permission, that, quote, Over the years, I've battled my own issues, particularly after tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. I just want everyone to know, even in the darkest of times, there are people who will drop everything to be there for you. So that's obviously an important message for sure. Let's share just a few more. Here's the next one. Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. It's a good one, isn't it? Here's another one. The right perspective makes the impossible possible. Again, the right perspective makes the impossible possible. Now, I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. And I just realized that I got so rattled by the the little mail delivery situation that I forgot to read a few from the Bible. And I, you know, the devil almost pulled it off tonight. But now I'm convinced, especially since I just messed that part up, that... (laughs) It is not meant for me to read these verses or do the end, and I'm going to do them. So, thank you for your patience. Here's the first one from Proverbs. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. That one's from Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. Again, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Man, that's beautiful. Steadfast love and faithfulness. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. All right, here's the next one. This one's from Psalms chapter 37, verse 18. 
Day by day, the Lord takes care of the innocent, and they will receive a reward that lasts forever. It's another good one. I've got two more, because I'm going for four today. This one's from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. It's a good one. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And then the final one from the Bible will be First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Again, godliness with contentment is great gain. Those are some good ones. All right, so we finished that. I messed things up a bit, but uh, I really appreciate your all's patience. I appreciate you joining me on this episode. I hope you're proud of our great country. I know it's not perfect, but I'm still proud of it, and I hope you are too. As you go through the week, remember that it's easy to be divisive, to argue with people about politics. Don't be that way. I want you to challenge you to show some love. If someone says something that's political and it offends you, just let it go. You're not going to change their mind anyway, right? So just ask if there's any, you know, ask them how their family's doing. Change the subject. Just be a wet blanket. Just let some love allow you to help unify the country because it begins with all of us. Show that person who is so absolutely wrapped up in politics that the other side isn't like some horrific person that wants to end their way of life because that's all they hear on the TV or radio every single day. And not all of these people, let's be honest, are stable. So let's be that anchor, that person that just help them get through that day, that week, that month. Remember that most Americans are good. And I have to finish with two things. One, don't forget about the books. You can find them all on Amazon. Look up Stan R. Mitchell. Dot, or Stan R. Mitchell, and it's all on Amazon. It's a great way to support the show, support a vet. I have sold 70,000 copies. Almost all of them have more than four-plus star reviews. They're independently published. No one's pushing them. They're pretty good books. Second thing is I've got to talk about PTSD for just a moment, especially since it seems like fate was trying to keep me from doing this because I know at some point I'm going to reach someone, and that is like my number one go. So the reality is veterans are 57% higher for risk of suicide than their peers of the same age group who haven't served. So if you're having any serious issues, please, please, please call 988-SELECT-1. Again, 988-SELECT-1, or you can text 838-255. You can talk to a veteran's crisis line responder anytime, day or night. I always like to mention something that the legendary retired Marine General James Mattis said, and I quote, You've been told that you're broken, that you're damaged goods. But it's important to remember there's also post-traumatic growth. That you come back from war stronger and more sure of who you are. And he, he went on to say, General Mattis, do not think of those that have served that they should be pitied. 
Instead, use your experiences as a positive that teaches you to be a better person. And so along those lines, I always like to say, you know, ask yourself, why is this happening? Why are these horrific thoughts racking your brain? I know part of it is because you've gone through trauma, things you've seen, things you've had to do. I understand that part. But part of it, and I want you to grasp this point, part of it is because you are great. You are the select few who had the guts and the courage to sign up, to raise your right hand, to do something that most people don't have the guts to do. And so I believe that literally there's a fight for your soul happening and the devil himself, the tormentor, the evil one, Satan, literally himself, he knows what you have in him. And he has to take you off the battlefield. He has to do it now while you're weak. He knows if you last another week, another month, another year, he loses. It gets easier with time. I know this. I've been out 20 plus years. I had terrible thoughts. You just have to get to the next day, to the next hour sometimes. The devil knows that. That's why he's, that's why he's after you. So he knows that... He doesn't need on his he doesn't need someone as strong as you opposing him. So he's trying to get in your head now and he's been doing it for weeks or months. And he you know, you've probably tried alcohol, you've probably tried pills. I know it's a hard fight. Even seeking help is hard, but you can't give up. And so that's what I want to say is, you know, in the Marine Corps we used to say death before dishonor, meaning we would rather die than than fall short of maintaining the standards and traditions of the Corps. You didn't ever surrender. You didn't leave men on a hill. You stood your ground. Death before dishonor. I know if you're one of these people listening right now that this is tough. But I'm telling you, you cannot give up. You cannot lose this fight. Please do not make your parents or family have to plan your funeral. It's horrific. You think your pain ends when this does, but don't put that burden on them. Do not make them guilty Feel guilty that they didn't check on you, that they couldn't reach you. Do not do the same thing for your friends who you served with. Don't leave wife or kids here. Don't, don't, don't do any of that. So I'm begging you, the next day is going to be a little easier. You just got to hang in there. If you're in a fight that you worry you may lose, do what you did when you served. Call for reinforcements. Call for help. But don't you dare surrender. Don't give up. So call for help. You can call 988, select one. You can call a friend, call a family member. Listen to what Todd Anderson said earlier. There are people that want to help you. So do not let the devil convince you that you will not be missed, that no one cares, that no one can understand what you are going through. Now, if you don't already have some kind of faith you can lean on, then please cry out to God. He can literally drive the devil out of your mind. He can do it now. He wants you to reach out to him. Just reach out and ask for help. If you have some other faith, lean on it, please. I'm not trying to convert everyone or do any of that stuff. But I am saying you cannot lose this fight. If you don't have other faith, I'm telling you, God loves you. He cares about you more than you could possibly know. You can reach Him at any time through prayer, through the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, download a Bible app. Look it up online. There's Bible websites everywhere. But more than anything, God loves you. He's waiting on you. He's probably chasing you. If you are listening to this, 
if you're breathing right now, you have a mission and there's something you're meant to do, but the devil is trying to get in your head and tell you there's not, that there's no hope, that there's no future, and it's all a lie. I'm telling you, it's a lie. So, please, you're not going to give up. Now, I said a lot. So, last point. If you're one of those people who are doing fine right now, you know what it feels like when that dark night of the soul happens and you don't even feel like you can make it another hour or another day. I challenge you to reach out to someone. Call a friend you haven't talked to in a while. Call someone you served with, especially if they're a military vet. There's a good chance they're hurting, even if they say they're good. And I want to mention in, a, in, the, in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, there's a small quote that's so good. And it's, the quote is this, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three or even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So just as the verse says, Remember that we all serve as the hands of God. So if you're doing well, reach out to someone. Check on the person who may not be. If you're struggling, I beg of you, call the Veterans Crisis Hotline, 988-SELECT-ONE, or reach out to God, please. He will help you. I promise. So that's the end of the show. The mail carriers did not win. The devil didn't win. Always like to end each show by reminding people you can comment anytime. I try to monitor those. Also, you can reach out to me privately. My email address is authorstanrmitchell at yahoo.com. Again, that's authorstanrmitchell at yahoo.com. You can say hi. You can vent. You can send news tips. I love all those things. Just remember, I love you all. But never forget that God loves you more. I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to The View from the Front. My name is Stan, and I am out.